Section 11 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section 11. Holmes. American literature is less strong in the mood of passionate contemplation, the serenest mood of art, than in the mood of revolt, exhortation, divine discontent with some aspects of the world. The more powerful writers, Emerson, Thoreau, Whitman, Whittier, Mark Twain, are in opposition to things as they are. They are men of radical convictions, which they try to impress on the reader through satire, sermons, inspired journalism, intense occasional verse. I do not mean that the spirit of propaganda, aggressive belief, is their only driving impulse, but the fire of the reformer is in them all. They are, each in his way, glorious cranks, and they are the most virile personalities in our literature." Holmes' views have been familiar for fifty years, and he now seems on the whole a witty, finely-bred old gentleman, expressing over the teacups ideas that are mild and respectable, certainly not dynamitical. It is today a little difficult to realize that he, too, was a revolter, that the first numbers of the Atlantic Monthly, made precious by the autocrat, encountered opposition among some of the conventional religious barbarians who were a dull majority in our free and independent country. Holmes is the unsuperstitious man of the world, the rationalist, the spokesman of what in his time is radical science, protesting against the theological attitude toward life. His mind is inquisitive, discursive, fanciful but very solidly sane. His manner is consciously well-bred, conciliatory, even elegant, a very innocent mask for some loaded guns that he fires while looking unconcernedly at something else. Having inspected the world and found it out, he does not attack it at full cry like a reformer, but in perfectly modulated tones, in a voice twinkling with laughter, though seldom yielding to the full chest-tones of mirth, he discourses urbanely of men and their ways. Without quite knowing whence the shot came, the enemy has received a blow fairly amidships. Holmes touches profundities with an assumption of amateurish inquiry, which with him is a method of humor, and not, as with Matthew Arnold, a dodging, unconvincing modesty. Because of Holmes's rationalism and urbanity, and also because his verse has a carven finish and intellectual glitter, he has been often referred to the eighteenth century which is preeminent for its town-bred essayists and witty versifiers. His biography, Mr. Morse, draws up a comic list of essayists to whom the autocrat has been likened, and sagely concludes that Holmes is Holmes. The autocrat is as Addisonian as anyone cares to find him, or as much like Lamb as someone else cares to find him. But, after all, the essayist is a distinctive individual. 
Indeed, his quality as an essayist depends on his difference from other people. The essay is a rare form which few men have been able to make so well that their collected discourses are numbered among the great books of the world. Unlikely as it may seem, if one has not thought of it before, English literature contains more good novels and poems than essays. It may be that the essayist quality is rarely given to a man of letters, and it may be that the great literary imaginations arrive at success in the other forms of art, so that the essay is made up of the otherwise unused fragments of genius. The apparent superiority of the eighteenth century in the essay is in part due to the lack of wealth in the other forms of writing, just as a kind of clear, shapely, intellectual verse seems to be peculiar to the eighteenth century because there is in that age so little beautiful emotional poetry. The nineteenth-century essayists are really more numerous and greater than those of the eighteenth century, but they are not relatively so prominent because they are surrounded by a varied profusion of genius of other types. Holmes is a single great discursive essayist that America has bound in its slender sheaf of literary harvest. It is easy, but not profoundly critical, to say Holmes, essayist and witty poet, eighteenth century noted for essays and witty poems, ah, yes, Holmes had a belated eighteenth-century mind. The truth is, he was a very modern man, wholly of his time and place. In form, in substance, he is no closer to the eighteenth century than is Emerson or Thoreau. In the topics he discusses, in the nervous eclectic variety of his mind, he is characteristic of his day and generation. It was Addison's ambition to have it said of me that I have brought philosophy out of closets and libraries, schools and colleges, to dwell at clubs and assemblies, at tea-tables and in coffee-houses. That expresses Addison even more perfectly than he realized, and not so flatteringly as he would have wished. He was an academic turned journalist. Seen across the splendor of the nineteenth century, the philosophy that he fetched out of colleges and library is jejune. Perfect in a narrow way, exquisitely phrased, it is not a very rich body of matter which Addison delivered from obscurity to the limited light of a few prosperous breakfast tables. Addison and Steele are triflers, all the better in their way for being triflers. Holmes is a well-stored modern man. Moreover, his is a forward-looking, not a backward-looking mind. Despite all recent rapid changes of ideas and the silencing, if not the disappearance, of some prejudices that he attacked, he is closer to us than to any time before him. His old-fashioned garment is a dramatic costume, as was Lamb's. The autocrat is a fresh, day-lit, life-lit book, tingling with present-day issues, though we have lost the sense of stir which it made in the obdurate bosom of Calvinism. We do not recognize ourselves in the breakfast-eaters to whom Mr. Addison condescended so charmingly. Indeed, it would better on some mornings to go back to bed if there were nothing more vital in the world than the spectator brings. But the autocrat is our neighbor, 
He can keep one up at night. Here is a champion of our kind of thought, a spirited, though half-disguised, controversialist, a believer in intellectual courage, in which our world, Holmes's Boston especially, is at this advanced date deplorably lacking. You never need think you can turn over any old falsehood, any old falsehood without a terrible squirming and scattering of the horrid little population that dwells under it. So speaks Dr. Holmes of Beacon Street, our contemporary, though not the contemporary of the intellectual decadence of Beacon Street. Do I think that the particular form of lying often seen in newspapers under the title from our foreign correspondent does any harm? Why, no. I don't know that it does. I suppose it doesn't really deceive people any more than the Arabian Nights or Gulliver's Travels do. There speaks our contemporary, though not the contemporary of the men who edited the newspapers that the boy brought this morning. The autocrat came full-blooded and shapely of limb from the brow of humor, a new form, a new manner. There is nothing like it in the whole range of causery. Master alike in speech and song, of fame's great antiseptic style, you with the classic few belong, who tempered wisdom with a smile. He belongs with the classic few, as Lowell says, because the classic is a man who does something that other classics have not done. He joins them by writing a book in his own way, without too much regard for established immortals. The autocrat is a new mode of essay, every man his own Boswell. It pretends to be a record of talk, and thereby gains the privileges of talk without sacrificing the advantages of literary phrasing when that is needed to put the thought in order. It is free from the rigors of the formal essay, and secures a natural right to circle over the universe, alighting when it will and soaring when it will. Holmes's grotesque delicious image is putting his straw in the bung of the universe. The table-talkers, Selden, Hazlitt, Coleridge, have left fine fragments, epigrammatic, witty, sententious, poetical, of the controversial man, or rather, of the monologizing man. Holmes, with an instinctive dramatic sense, favors a broader idea of human talk. He embodies himself in a variety of mouthpieces. The characters afford him opportunity to say things that he really means, but which a Brahmin physician might not care to express propria voce. He enjoys in himself and others the habit of the human mind of jumping from topic to topic, and his table-talk form enables him to indulge the enjoyment. He drops with apparent casualness the conclusion of a lifelong reflection on a pet idea, and then turns lightly to something else, so that the favorite thought does not betray how much the author thinks of it. Holmes was nearly fifty when he wrote The Autocrat, and he had written little prose before. He drew on the untouched treasures of a mind at vigorous maturity, stocked full of experience. 
It is from experience that he dips oftenest and deepest. He is a reader, an amateur of books, but not a bookish man. He disliked criticism and refused to become one of the Atlantic reviewers. His statistical enumeration of Emerson's multitudinous references to literature reveals rather respectful amusement than admiration. He lectured on the English poets and was cordially applauded, but of this literary excursion nothing is remembered except the verses with which he concluded each discourse. Whenever he speaks of books in The Autocrat or The Professor, he speaks with unerring perspicacity and individuality of judgment. This single sentence in The Professor expresses Wordsworth in a flash. Read the sonnet, if you please. It is Wordsworth all over, trivial in subject, solemn in style, vivid in description, prolix in detail, true metaphysically, but immensely suggestive of imagination, to use a mild term, when related as an actual fact of a sprightly youngster. That is the sort of condensed criticism which one finds in Lamb's letters. The American essayists who were Holmes' friends, especially Lowell and Emerson, are buried in books. They are thick with allusions which send a reader often to the library, and that is part of their service as humanists, diffusers of culture. Holmes makes you close in his book, with your finger between the pages, and let your fancy run on what he has been saying. He stands on his own feet, thinking about life, and does not sit on the shoulders of the literary giants of the ages. Yet few of his more bookish contemporaries, devoted to purely literary questions, write so well as he does. Only Hawthorne, of the New Englanders, equals him in unbroken perfection of style. Holmes is one of the masters of style, in whose phrasing there is no technical flaw, no expression blurred, and but loosely approximate to the thought. His prose and his verse are free from false verbal notes. There is in his work not one of those sentences that somehow get neglected in the practical business of making manuscript, and which suffer for the healing touch of proofreader or editor. This is the more remarkable in view of the range of Holmes' thought. He expresses a great many kinds of idea. The very index to the autocrat is a work of humor. He leaps from witty fooling and whimsicalities to some puzzling problem of psychology, which he fetches into the light of his transparent logical style. Then with an instinctive avoidance of tedium and long explanation, he leaves the problem and passes to a bit of sentiment, often on a high plane of feeling, where he is equally sure and in command of the resources of language. For cross-play of whimsicality, over-restrained and honest pathos, you will look long before you find anything better than this from My Hunt After the Captain. In the first car, on the fourth seat to the right, I saw my captain. There saw I him, even my firstborn, whom I had sought through many cities. How are you, boy? How are you, dad? 
such are the proprieties of life as they are observed among us anglo-saxons of the nineteenth century decently distinguishing those natural impulses that made joseph the prime minister of egypt weep aloud so that the egyptians and the house of pharaoh heard nay which had once overcome his shaggy old uncle esau so entirely that he fell on his brother's neck and cried like a baby in the presence of all the women but the hidden cisterns of the soul may be filling fast with sweet tears while the windows through which it looks are undimmed by a drop or a film of moisture his thoughts on love in the professor are beautiful at once speculative and humane he slips once or twice into the mists of poetical metaphysics on the verge of the region where emerson wanders in his essay on love but comes swiftly back to the persons at the table he seldom quite lets go his moorings in life the autocrat is the cream of a man's mind at fifty had he said the best that he had to say and would the next book be a limping sequel unable to keep the pace of his predecessor there are those who find the professor even better than the autocrat indeed it is a deepening and ripening of the autocrat's method and quality of thought the professor argues a little more at length moves more steadily in one subject with less fantastic flitting fewer wayward excursions in pursuit of lateral analogies the old verve is there with an admixture of a sharper satire there is a reason why the autocrat should have had a sequel that gentle old fellow had to his surprise started some controversies by the fresh candor of his thoughts on life and religion these controversies suggested new ideas but they were not for the autocrat to take up they would have been out of character the professor is the man to resume some of these argumentative ideas and press them home the professor of course is an avowedly learned man and accustomed to lecture whereas the autocrat is only an amateur talker the professor's bete noire is orthodoxy he is an impartial critic of the various learned occupations he shows that the theological attitude is not peculiar to theologians and strikes hard at pseudoscience in his own realm of thought little boston is an excellent character his local patriotism slightly caricatured is a page from the doctor's own book of life that is a delightful way to express an idea to let it run to overstatement in the talk of a character and then shave it off and modify it in the true first person iris is rather shadowy a feminine vision for a wild middle-aged man to enwrap in gracious ideas the boy john is a bit of low comedy realism which the doctor had brought in for the express purpose of unseating himself when he gallops too long on a high horse the book has a central idea outside the story of iris its thesis is humanity in science and theology it is an ultimate apology for the medical profession doubly persuasive for its frank acknowledgment of weaknesses in the esculapian brotherhood it pleads for and expresses the humanity of learning and is a shrewd antidote to pedantry pseudoscience 
and religious buncombe. One reason that the professor seems to a young New Englander so tingly alive, so contemporaneous, is that the delusions it doubtily pulled to pieces still flourish. We need the book at least as much as our fathers needed it. The poet and Over the Teacups are written in the doctor's inimitable manner, or perhaps it would be fair to say in the manner that only Holmes could imitate. They suffer in comparison with himself alone. The sources of good talk are by no means run dry, though the stream is a little thinner. Holmes is not one of those whom popularity induced to write too much. He lived a long life, and his complete works are but a modest dozen volumes. His success in portraying characters and making them talk in the true idioms of life encouraged him to write a novel. Elsie Venner is an ingenious story, and it needs not to be said that it is well written. Holmes did not know how otherwise to write, but he had not the gifts of the genuine novelist. He might have discovered them in himself if he had begun to look for them at thirty instead of at fifty. The manager of Elsie Venner is the professor. He shows through delightfully at times, in spite of the shivery tale. Perhaps we do not shiver now, for we have lived through Ibsen and other men of tragic genius, whose problems are more intense and harrowing than any idea of the doctor's. Elsie Venner excites in us intellectual interest and gives the pleasure which a fine mind always offers even in some form of literature to which it is not best adapted. The Guardian Angel, another tale strung on a curious thesis, is more delightful than Elsie Venner. It is written in a lower key. If the professor is stage manager of Elsie Venner, the director of the Guardian Angel is the autocrat. The first half of the book, where the problems of the plot have not begun to close in and demand of the author a skill that he does not quite possess, is as full of wise fun as so many pages of the Breakfast Table series. From the time when Holmes, at twenty-one, struck the public fancy with his stirring boyish verses, Old Ironsides, he was known as a writer of occasional poetry. He is perhaps the most uniformly skillful and delightful maker of rhymes in commemoration of local events to be found in English literature. He was ambitious to be known as a poet, as is every man of letters who has tasted at all of the divinest spring. His verses are among the most graceful pages of the autocrat, and in their kind they are perfect. As he never wrote poor prose, so he never wrote bad poetry, and yet he is not a poet of lofty rank. He is a neat versifier of humor, sentiment, and friendship, fundamentally sincere, and dexterous in touching his modest lyre. There are several such poets in the nineteenth century whom we could ill spare, and whose volumes we thumb as often, perhaps, as the works of the great poets, for example, Gilbert, Hood, Praed, Thackeray, Locker Lamson, Calverley. They are the pleasantest companions, and they are very fine technical metrists. The great note they do not attempt. 
Holmes' most ambitious poem, the one which he was most eager to have remembered as poetry, is the chambered Nautilus. To me it seems an elaborated conceit, pretty but not moving. The best of his poems is The Last Leaf, which touches with a fine tenderness, through a playfully turned stanza, the true pathos of age. Wind clouds and star drifts, elevated in thought and well done in its way, is cold as prose. As the poet at the breakfast table himself says of the verses, they were evidently written honestly and with feeling, and no doubt meant to be reverential. But the inexplicable inspiration never descended upon the autocrat-poet-professor. The prose passage in the autocrat about the sea and the mountains is essentially better poetry than any of Holmes's verse. The sea remembers nothing. It is feline. It licks your feet. Its huge flanks purr very pleasantly for you. But it will crack your bones and eat you. For all that and wipe the crimson foam from its jaws as if nothing had happened. The mountains give their lost children berries and water. The sea mocks their thirst and lets them die. The mountains have a grand, stupid, lovable tranquility. The sea has a fascinating, treacherous intelligence. The mountains lie about like huge ruminants, their broad backs awful to look upon but safe to handle. The sea smooths its silver scales until you cannot see their joints, but their shining is that of a snake's belly, after all. In deeper suggestiveness I find as great a difference. The sea drowns out humanity and time. It has no sympathy with either, for it belongs to eternity, and of that it sings its monotonous song for ever and ever. In the poetry of light sentiment, of humor and sparkling wordplay, Holmes is perfectly successful. He is the best possible maker of after-dinner verses. The spirit of college festivals and friendly reunions he caught and spun into cunning rhymes, not once but in fifty pieces. The deacon's masterpiece and the broomstick train possess that unquestionable merit which is settled once for all by the fact that no one else ever did anything like them. The Brahmin doctor had only one peer in the versifying of Yankee humor, and that was his neighbor across the river, Mr. Hosea Biglow. Holmes belonged to the prosperous, comfortable classes. He took very much to heart some of the problems of his time, the intellectual and religious problems. He was a very keen and advanced investigator of some questions of psychology, and no man ever phrased scientific knowledge more perspicuously for the layman. But life for him was easy, and he saw things from the sunny side of a clean street. Lowell early accused him of indifference to political and social reform, to which Holmes replied most winningly, half confessing the charge. He believed in good family in the refinements of wealth, and was an apologist of the privileged whom wealth and opportunity surround with the graces of life to which he was very sensitive. He looked with humorous but distant sympathy on any democratic idea that happened to be current, and a good many queer forms of democratic ideas were current. But he remained closely within the shelter of caste. 
His point of view is frankly New England, not broadly American, and certainly not of a world social scope. His attitude toward life is that of a gently satirical romantic. He does not understand realism in literature, nor the social structure that at bottom unites, say, the autocrat's landlady with the ancestral advantage with the autocrat thinks a young man ought to have. The individual specimen of human nature he inspects quizzically, affectionately. He writes for the few, not the many. He addresses those who can catch an idea as it flies. His odd combination of logic and fantasy makes his work a continuous delight. The process of his thought, as he unfolds it, is fascinating, and he himself watches it with a delighted sense of surprise. He is the most modest of egotists, and except when he is attacking an enemy, always a generalized intellectual enemy, never a personal one, he suggests rather than asserts. His intellectual curiosity warily eludes closed final statements. To him, the universe is going on all the time, and was not concluded with the last remark that any of us happened to regard as ultimate. Every imagination that merits his is stimulated to go on thinking about a world that is so full of a number of things. Biographical Note Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, August 29, 1809. He died in Boston, October 7, 1894. He was graduated from Harvard in 1829 and studied medicine in Boston and Paris. In 1836 he began to practice medicine. From 1847 to 1882 he was professor of anatomy at the Harvard Medical School. He made one or two original discoveries in medicine, one of which led him into controversy with older physicians. The professor in the laboratory is almost as interesting as at the breakfast table, for he wields the same competent pen. Except for a visit to Europe in 1886, Holmes spent his long life in Boston and Beverly. In 1840, he married Amelia Lee Jackson. His chief works are Poems, 1836, Homeopathy and Its Kindred Delusions, 1842, Poems, 1846, 1849, 1850, 1862, the Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, 1858, The Professor at the Breakfast Table, 1860, Elsie Venner, 1861, Songs in Many Keys, 1861, Soundings from the Atlantic, 1863, Humorous Poems, 1865, The Guardian Angel, 1867, The Poet at the Breakfast Table, 1872, Songs of Many Seasons, 1874, Memoir of Motley, 1878, The Iron Gate, 1880, Pages from an Old Volume of Life, 1883, Medical Essays, 1883, Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1884, The New Portfolio, 1885-6, 
A Mortal Antipathy, 1885, Our Hundred Days in Europe, 1887, Before the Curfew, 1888, Over the Teacups, 1890. The Complete Biography is The Life and Letters of Holmes by Mr. John Tyler Morse. Mr. S. M. Crothers has in preparation the volume on Holmes for the American Men of Letters series. One can confidently recommend it in advance of publication, for Mr. Crothers is the most genial essayist discovered and encouraged by the Atlantic Monthly since Lowell induced Holmes to write for the first number. End of section 11. Recording by Laurie Arsenault, Maine.